A decade of discovery and dating stars. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. Every 10 years, NASA tasks the science community to chart the course for the next decade of discovery and exploration. University of Florida's Rob Farrell is co-chairing the next decadal survey, looking at biological and physical science research. As NASA and other agencies push forward looking for signs of life in our universe, what's the path ahead? We'll speak to Farrell about the process and trajectory of discovery. Then, how can you tell the age of stars? Turns out, it's really difficult. But researchers at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University are hoping to shed some light on stars' ages by watching how fast they spin. I virtually visited the observatory at Embry-Riddle to speak with physics chair and researcher Terry Oswalt about the technique to date a star and how searching the night sky for double star systems could hold the key to determining their age. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's Space Station. It's time for a new decadal survey. Each year, NASA asks the science community for input on the direction and trajectory of discovery. It's a ground-up process that aims to create a consensus on scientific priorities and the focus of future missions for the 10 years to come. University of Florida's Rob Farrell is co-chair of the Decadal Survey on Biological and Physical Sciences Research in Space, 2023 to 2032, and he joins us now to talk about that process. Rob, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. So let's talk about this decadal. Um, What's the main objective of of the decadal, and what's the process like? What I'm going to do first is, is just sort of expand on your notion that scientists come together and produce such a thing. It's it's really a more formalized process than that. And and once once one realizes what this process is, it actually becomes pretty compelling and, and pretty beautiful, actually, especially from a scientist perspective. Decadal studies are a tool, a process used by NASA to deeply, and I mean deeply, engage the scientific community in helping define the scientific goals, direction, and even mission goals and directions for the agency across the various science disciplines at NASA. The decadals started in the 1960s um, with uh, planetary science type decadal and have been adopted by the relationship between NASA and the National Academies to cover a fair number of the parts, pieces, and scientific goals across the NASA disciplines. The one we're working on is called Biological and Physical Sciences in Space. Um, It has to do with the science in and around all the human vehicles and habitats that that are involved with space. It involves looking back at Earth to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. But there are other decadals that study planetary science, that study heliophysics, that study um, astrobiology and the various parts and pieces of the entire breadth of NASA. So our decadal is one of many. It's mm-hmm. one of a big process whereby NASA truly and objectively engages the national academies to put together this group of scientists that will then take several years to review the literature, talk about 
where the fields ought to be headed and to put together a game plan for NASA to look at. Mm-hmm. I mean, how, how much impact does it have on NASA missions? I mean, historically, has this really been what steers um, the agency's exploration efforts? You mean, does it make a difference? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I have to say that it makes a huge difference. There are a few times, well, that's not entirely true, but there are not a lot of times when a scientist or a scientific community can feel they have an impact on science policy. Mm-hmm. All too often, we're responding to agencies and their declared directions Um, Every once in a while, we get to help define what those directions are. Um, And I have to tell you, NASA does a wonderful job of not only engaging in the production of the decadals, but also in using them as their guidance for the next decade. Mm -hmm. Um, Just to sort of spin that out a little bit further, not only does the decadal document exist, but for each of the decadal areas, there is a standing committee, um, usually part of the Space Studies Board, that the academies use to engage scientists on yearly, twice yearly reviews of NASA's progress along the decadal structure. So it's not only used and exists because NASA wants to use it, but also because NASA engages the academies on a on a twice yearly basis to find out if we're doing okay. It, so it, it really it, is real. Yeah, and it sounds like it's kind of a, a ground up way for scientists to influence policy, um, as you've described it. Um, how does that process work? What give me the nuts and bolts of actually putting together this document? Yeah, so. Boy, the nuts and bolts are are a fairly arduous and and big deal. Can you um, explain it in less than the twelve minutes we have for this segment? <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah. Let me let me let me do that from a very top level point of view. Um, basically, the NASA and the National Academies come to an agreement for producing what's called the statement of task, which then creates the relationship that allows the academies to gather volunteers from around the country to organize and produce the document. It's about a two and a half to three year process. Mm-hmm. The, right now, the two co-chairs, myself and Dr. Kristen Van Bleet from MIT have been identified. And over the course of the next months, we'll be putting together the steering committee. And then the steering committee will put together the discipline the subject area panels that will contribute to the actual writing by the time it's all said and done there'll be at least 50 scientists directly involved in producing the document and they will represent the hundreds and thousands of scientists that will have put together white papers presentations um, special um, presentations to the writing committees to help define the way uh, science ought to be working, driven, and what the goals ought to be for for our particular area of space science. Mm-hmm. 
And and this one you're working on, when does it go into effect? Uh, I guess essentially how long are you working on this before you hand it into NASA? So we're looking at roughly 2023. Okay. So it's, it's, we're at the beginning of a several year process. Um, and right now we're at the, what you would call the early stages where the community has been alerted for several months now to put together white papers for, hmm, think about whatever you might want to think about in our area of science, mission concepts, areas of interest, special areas of attention, and mm-hmm. other things that, that constitute the kinds of things that ought to be in the minds of the people putting together mm-hmm. the decade you said that it's it's a forward-looking document, but it also kind of looks at some of the past achievements. And I've got to think with, you know, someone who's looking at biological and physical sciences, um, human exploration has got to be top of mind here. And especially when this is the decade that we're going back to the moon. Um, talk a little bit about some of the um, the priorities you think should be focused, you know, in the next decade when it comes to human exploration and, and your uh, research? So those, of course, are, are, are deeply towards the heart of, of what the entire process will be about. And I think you've hit on a couple of very important things. At, the, at, a, at a top scale, there are a few things that are just extremely important here. One is going back to the moon. So think about what you would do if you were given the capability of putting a dozen, 15, 50 scientists together in a room and say, hey, pretend you're going back to the moon. Pretend you're going to be on the moon for a day. What would be a cool thing to do? What kind of science needs to be done? If you're going to be there for a month or a year, how does that kind of science change and what becomes important? So for me as a biologist, one of the critical things to do would be to say, what does life in one six gravity at extended periods of time look like? What mm-hmm. biological processes are influenced by partial gravity, not just for a little while, but for a long time? Um, moreover, since we are going to be making trips to and from the moon, how does changes in gravity affect biology? Um, we're getting pretty good at understanding what happens at zero gravity and at one gravity. Mm-hmm. But all those things in between, yeah, we're not quite so good at it yet. So that's an important thing. The other thing to mention is that the space station, the ISS National Lab and NASA's presence on the space station is hitting a new dimension and capabilities right now with commercial crew and the number of astronauts available to do science. I expect that the, both the biology and physical science capabilities of the low Earth orbit, true microgravity research are going to see a whole new dimension of activity in the next decade as well. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you mentioned that this work will be looking at what it's going to be like to live and work on the moon in these reduced gravity environments for these astronauts, but that's a very small percentage of, of people. Is, is part of what you look at for, for this decadal document 
the practical applications of this science for you know folks like us back here on Earth? Is that something that you consider uh, looking forward? Well, I think the the way I would phrase it might be something like, what principles can we learn about life and the uh, environmental the things in the environment that impact life? What can we learn from being on the moon that helps us understand anything about the way life works here? For example, there are a lot of signals that happen inside a piece of biology, inside a tree, inside a plant, inside of a microbe that are influenced by gravity. Um, By taking gravity out of the equation, we learn more about those signals and those responses. And therefore, we learn a lot more about the way things work in biology writ large, not just the biology on the moon. And by the way, it's not just astronauts that are going to be going to the moon. There's going to be all the microbes they take along with them. There's going to be uh, plants and some form of animals that are going to be going there to understand the generational impacts of, of going to the moon just like the long-duration experiments on the space station have informed us about a lot about biology outside of being mm-hmm. in space. Mm-hmm. And finally, Rob, I mean, you're, you're taking the, you know, the ideas and, and priorities of hundreds, if not thousands, of scientists and steering it and directing it into this document to give to NASA. This seems like, first of all, just a massive amount of work and responsibility. Um, why, why do you do it? Why, why did you volunteer for, for this position? And, and what motivates you uh, to create this document? Well, I've touched on it a little bit. And that's, that is the ability of a scientist to affect public policy, to affect the direction of science, in a proactive manner, other than just wishing for something cool to happen, one can have an influence to make something cool happen. And the truth of the matter is, is that I've been, I've been privileged to be a part of the space science community. I, when I tell people what I get to do for my daily job, you know, it's just pretty darn cool. It's a privilege to be in the business of studying space exploration. I owe somebody something. I owe somebody. I owe the community. I owe the world a lot for giving me this particular opportunity. And if by by participating in this, by keeping the doors open and by helping other people find out what science is going to be like in the next decade. I create that for other people. That's that's just pretty cool, and it feels like what I owe the world. That was University of Florida's Rob Farrell. He's the co-chair of the Decadal Survey on Biological and Physical Science Research in Space, 2023-2032. Still to come, the curiously difficult task of dating stars. That's ahead when Are We There Yet continues here on WMFE, America's Space Station. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's Space Station. I'm Brendan Byrne. How can you tell the age of stars? Well, it turns out it's really difficult. But researchers at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University are hoping to shed some light on a star's age by watching how fast they spin. 
I virtually visited the observatory at Embry-Riddle to speak with physics chair and researcher Terry Oswalt about the technique for dating a star and how searching the night sky for double star systems could hold the key to determining their age. Well, actually, not just me, but Dr. Otani and Dr. Von Hippel were involved in this project, too. Uh, we're doing uh, research in an area that's called gyrochronology. Gyro- Which is the coolest word. Oh, yeah. Like that's what that's what piqued my interest. Gyrochronology. We're scientists, we make stuff up. <laughs> Gyro means to rotate or to spin, and chronology means age or time. And like Hollywood actors, stars just don't like to give up their ages. <laughs> it's one of the most hard things you can ask an, a, a, an astronomer is how old is that star? It, there are a few ways to do it, and none of them are very accurate. But like people, stars slow down as they age. And what we're trying to do, Dr. Otani and Dr. Von Hippel and I and some colleagues at other universities, are, are trying to gauge what the relationship between a star's activity, like sunspots, the sun's coming up into the active phase of its 11-year cycle, even as we speak, um, But that activity is driven by rotation. Rotation in an object like the sun or another star excites the spot activity and the flares and the explosions and and emissions of plasma that we call space weather here in the solar system. And what we're trying to do is to figure out, we're trying to put some marks, some actual numbers on the time it takes a star to wind down. Stars are throwing away material in what's called a stellar, in the case of the sun, a solar wind. That's what space weather is all about. And that's a whole mm-hmm. another program right there is talking about space weather. And that matter is being thrown away. And the magnetic field of the sun is also reaching out and interacting with the interstellar medium. And both of those represent a sort of friction, a slowing down of the Earth, of the sun's rotation rate over time. But try to put a calendar on that rate of slowing. That's where this project comes in. And what we're trying to do is to Mm -hmm. test about a half a dozen different numerical theories that people have published about what causes stars to slow down and how fast they slow down and what age you can tack onto them at a given rotation rate. For example, the sun is four and a half billion years old, and it's a and its rotation rate is about a month, which is fairly typical for a sun-like star. Mm-hmm. But is that true for all sun-like stars? There appears to be some exceptions. How about a lower mass star or a much larger mass star? The relationship isn't perfect. And so what we're trying to do, and, and the, the uniqueness of the project we're working on, um, uses the Kepler data which was a one meter telescope that for almost four years stared at one spot in the sky. Searching for exoplanets, right? Searching for exoplanets. But when you're looking for the tiny little dimming that a planet causes when it passes in front of its star, that's pretty much a similar effect when a star has spots on it and it's rotating. When the spot comes into view, the star dims a little bit. Hmm. The same techniques can be used to to look for the rotation period of a star, which is nothing but a point of light in the sky, but it winks at you slightly, a few parts per million typically when Mm -hmm. a planet passes in front of it or when a spot comes around. 
And so if you see the repetitive dips caused by the star spots, that gives away its rotation rate. Now all you need to do is to figure out how to get an age on it. Mm-hmm. There are several ways. Maybe I'll ask uh, Dr. Von Hippel uh, uh, if he's on to talk a little bit about how we get ages using clusters of stars. Uh, Ted, you want to say a few words about how you get ages of clusters? Sure. Um, yeah, so as Terry was mentioning, ages are one of the most important and difficult things to get for stars. I like to rewind back to something that we're all familiar with, which is Darwin's theory of evolution. Darwin didn't make this leap into thinking about deep time and therefore evolution, a very slow change, until he was influenced by Lyell and other geologists who at the time were saying the earth was hundreds of millions of years old based on what they were seeing. So there's some sense of deep time that has to come outside of biology to get that context for biology. And likewise, that sense of deep time from geology influenced astronomy and the astronomers and physicists at the time knew the sun couldn't just be a pile of wood or coal on fire. Um, So we have a couple different techniques to get a calibration for this gyrochronology. And one of them is what mass star is just now stopping to burn hydrogen in the center and on its way to becoming a red giant. And that can be determined in an open cluster. And another technique, I work on that technique, but another technique I also work on is that white dwarfs, the very late stages of the star, the white dwarf is just the hot ember that used to be the core of a star. And it will cool with time because there's no more power source. So it's sort of like a rock left by a campfire. After the campfire has gone out, you can tell how long ago the campfire went out by how warm that rock is. Hmm. Um, I work on both of those, and we're trying to use those to calibrate um, the technique that Terry's talking about, the gyrochronology. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Terry, go ahead. I, I was going to ask, to to go back to your analogy of, of, of Hollywood stars aging, 4.5 billion years old for, for <laughs> our, our own star, yeah. Is it the start of its career? Is it is it nearing retirement? <laughs> where where well, are we? There are half a dozen different ways to prove this, but the simplest one is to take E equals MC squared and, and the sun's energy output right now, which would be E divided mm-hmm. by time. And you can work out with the mass of the sun how long it would last if it turned all of its mass into energy. And that turns out to be tens of billions of years. That's So we're good. We're, we're fine. So we're good. Okay. If you do a little more rigorous calculation, it turns out the sun will last for maybe 10 billion years. And it's 4.5 billion years approximately old. So it's middle-aged. Mm-hmm. And, um, it's got a good run coming ahead of it. But I, had, I hate to give you the bad news, but in about a billion years, global warming will become a serious problem because the sun's gradual, gradually turning into a red giant and it will bake us. <laughs> Well, we at least we have some time. We have some time. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we there's there's a few techniques to kind of to to you know look at this, look at the sun as as if it's a a, a ember in a campfire, or, or look at the stars if it's an ember in a campfire to to age it. Uh, what what other ways can can you know researchers and scientists like yourself really nail down how old these stars are? Well, the, the, the ways that Ted just outlined are, are pretty common, but rarely get better than a, than a 10 or 20% precision, although the white dwarf ages are pretty good. 
Um, that happens to be an area that several of us are interested in. Um, the ages of, of what we're trying to do in our project is to use the very, very high precision measurements of brightness that Kepler provided over a four-year period for one spot in the sky, but many millions of stars were in that image that was repeatedly taken for, for four and a half, four years, and the follow-on uh, multiple-year extended Kepler K2 mission, which retargeted several other places in the sky, about two dozen other places in the sky, and the current NASA transiting Earth uh, survey satellite, TESS for short, mm-hmm. which is looking for near-Earth planets, exoplanets. Uh, Kepler was most sensitive to very distant exoplanets. TESS is specifically looking for planets nearby the sun around bright stars, many of which are bright enough to be seen with the naked eye. All three of those missions have many hundreds of thousands, actually many millions of stars whose light curves, that's the string of data, brightness versus time over however many months or years each mission lasted. Um, for stars to parts per million in precision. So we're looking through those those archives, if you will, and the incoming data for the the signatures of spots and rotation. Mm -hmm. Uh, Angle, we've taken on this, and I don't want to draw this one subject out too far because we've got dozens of other topics that people are probably more interested in, is that we're specifically, our group is specifically looking at pairs of stars. Most stars have at least one companion. Our sun seems to be unusual in that it's a loner. Which I find the most fascinating thing. This is something I learned producing the show is that a binary star system is not uncommon, right? Norm. Something like two thirds of all stars, certainly well over half anyway, Mm -hmm. are binaries and many others are triples or quadruples or multiples. Uh, the second star on the handle of the Big Dipper, just the one one in from the end, is a, a visual binary. You can see both stars with the naked eye if you've got 20-20 vision. Anyway, long story short, take two stars. They're the same age. They were born together. They must have the same age. Okay? Their rotation rates should give you the same age if gyrochronology works. And so what we're trying to do is to use these pairs of stars. And oh, by the way, we have uh, something like a million binaries now to work on out of out of these three missions. Um, we're trying to see what theory of the half a dozen or so explains the rotation versus age paradigm works best. So we're putting them to the test. Every binary ought to show the same, two, the, the, each pair of stars ought to have the same age. Mm-hmm. If, gyro models are correct so mm-hmm. we're putting theory to the test that's that's the important half of the scientific method you make a hypothesis you go out and find data that will test that hypothesis and gradually outcomes a theory a mathematical model that actually explains what will happen in the future that was embry riddles terry oswald i'll post a link to that full conversation on our website Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to this show's podcast feed and never miss an episode. Subscribe on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We've got more space coverage online. Visit wmfe.org slash space. You can also stay connected to this show on social media. Give our Facebook page a like. Search for Are We There Yet Podcast. 
We're also on Twitter and Instagram. That's at A-W-T-Y space. Are We There Yet? is a production of WMFE, America's Space Station. Editorial guidance this week from Matthew Petty. Our new intern is Randy Vuxta. Randy, welcome to the show. Support for Are We There Yet? comes from our listeners. And until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening. 